This is some of my best work. I'm your host, Jane Rocker. Buy Me a Pony is only one minute and 44 seconds long, but it's an incredible highlight for Cram and his band, Spider Bait. Released in 1996, when Australia was in its own punk rock revolution, this was the era when music festivals were packed, where a recognisable counterculture sound had hit the mainstream and CD sales had yet to peak. College radio was huge in the USA. Underground stations in Melbourne like Triple R and PBS were pivotal in bringing the sound from this scene to the loyal fans that craved every fuzzed out hook at live music venues around the country. Buy Me A Pony was also the first Australian song to be voted number one in the Triple J Hottest 100. Funnily enough, inspiration for the melody came from an old 1980s Australian television commercial. And if you've got an ear for time signatures, well, Cram gets quite deep into the song's musical complexity during our interview. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend and share the show with those you know will appreciate a bit of a deep dive into what makes these songs some of the best for these artists. But here he is, Cram from Spiderbait and the story of Buy Me A Pony. I wanted to choose Buy Me A Pony for a number of reasons. I think one, because it was such a breakthrough song for us. Um became the first Australian song to win the Hottest 100. It was also a really quite a different sounding song for us, for me in particular. It's very concise, very short, written in a very um, tight sort of way. And when most of the stuff I'd done before, that was more, more metally and longer. And also probably most importantly because of the lyrics and what was going on at the time how the lyrical side of the song I think contributed hugely to its success and why it's still kind of relevant today. I still have friends in younger bands who always ask me about that song and talk to me about it and and really like it. So it was all these different sort of elements all coming at once and it was very much represented a big transition point for our our band um, to what we were and to what we became and what I guess what we are now. And Cram, just take us through, I guess it's it's the mid-90s. Your band is an indie band that's getting a lot of mainstream recognition and as you say, then you sign to a major label. Maybe tell us a little bit about that transition, making that decision and maybe the opportunities that came with making that change and what this song sort of afforded the band in terms of those opportunities too. Well, it was a strange time. Us, like a lot of other bands of that era, were very much independent bands. Um, we we signed to small labels. Ours was a go-go records out of Melbourne. And I think originally when we did sign or when we first started playing, the idea of becoming a huge 
success and having selling thousands of records and doing all this stuff was really unthinkable because no one in Australia or the world for that matter on mainstream radio or mainstream charts were playing or buying this sort of music. So it was very much an underground phenomenon. And and we, uh, I'm sure as a lot of my contemporaries would agree, we all loved it that way. I remember when we came up and started playing a lot with the throwaways and with the gutter snipes and there were two other bands also on a go-go and I do want to pay tribute to Sean Baxter from the throwaways who's no longer with us who had a really big influence on me when I first moved to Melbourne we we lived in um, University College together and at Melbourne Uni and Sean we used to go and drink imported beer listen to punk rock music and play Arkanoid in the Norton's Hotel we love video games and um, Shawnee was a a genius drummer and a most incredible avant-garde uh, musician and thinker, and it's really sad that he's that he's gone. But that era where we all played together, because all of us were doing pretty well, but we kind of decided collectively, and it was a very collective spirit in those days, why don't we all play together and then your fans can see us and then our fans can see you and we can all fill the tote. We started this thing called Tell Them It's Healthy. And for a short time, it was a very big phenomenon in Melbourne and I think it went a long way for everyone us and gutter snipes and throwaways included as well as the meanies were part of this of this this scene to really helping build a bigger crowd and make make stuff happen so there was a lot of beautiful things happen but realistically by the time we got to um the sort of mid 90s you started to question how much further could you go like we weren't really getting much interest overseas people were interested but i don't know it was just it we just felt like we'd reached a bit of a wall and all of a sudden nirvana happens and there's this big sudden push for what normally would have been previously been unthinkable is now what everyone wants and that's our type of band so we went into it very skeptically but i think in a way Part of our love of pop music was growing up watching Countdown and listening to commercial radio as country kids in a small town. And we always were fascinated by the charts and rock stars and hit records and all that. It's all part of the magic of rock and roll and of pop culture. In a way, we sort of thought, well, maybe we can give this a go as long as we stay true to ourselves and keep control over what we want to do. We thought, fuck it, let's go for it. And we, we've we never really looked back since. But I think we were we were one of the lucky ones. I don't think it worked for everyone. And I know we all know of recent times how badly behaved some of these record companies have been in the past to bands and individuals. But we we really just tried to maintain a strength of friendship and also creatively speaking just a collectivity that we would we would stick together no matter what. And the label was was accommodating. It's funny that here I am talking about this particular song, which was the big, you know, the big hit song off that record along with Calypso, which basically talks all about how fucked the record company is and record business is. So it was kind of a strange way for us to enter it. But I'm glad that was that's what happened because it seemed to be very meaningful to us at the time and still is. Tell me a little bit about where you recorded the song because I think you, you had mentioned it was – Bakehouse, the the former Bakehouse studio in Fitzroy. But paint a bit of a picture of what's happening when you're making 
the album and writing this song particularly? Well, it's a funny song. I mean, I, I did want to talk about it in three different factors, and one of them is the actual music. So it's it's kind of a pretty, sounds like a pretty simple song. You know, that's a pretty straight sort of riff and stuff. But I started looking into the song deeper, and this is weird, Jane. Like I actually only really, really started analysing this recently. You know, I'd written a lot of songs in weird time signatures. You know, there's there's scene style, you know. Sorry, my guitar's way out of tune. That's in a in a five time. And on this record there's um there's chest hair, which is in a seven. Which is seven. And it never occurred to me that Bummy a Pony is actually a combination of all of these different time signatures. So the first part of the song is in six. So it's one, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. And then it goes to seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And that's the two things. And then it goes back to six again. One, two, three, four, five, six. Until it comes to this release, where you finally get a four, you get a nice four on the floor, I'm happy, everything's okay. So to tell you the truth, Jane, the song's a hell of a lot fucking cleverer than I remember <laughs> it. And so it was interesting to think about that, the music, and that it was actually all of these things stuck together like a jigsaw puzzle. But the lyrics which is, you know, the song's probably most famous for, I started remembering when we were kids that Janet and Whit and myself all grew up in a small town called Finlay and back then there was only the ABC, I think, and two commercial stations and we were bombarded with advertisements. There's so many ads. And um, I think in a funny way that's how a lot of us learn to sing. You learn to sing along with ads and you could uh, recite, all of us can still, we do sometimes in band rooms, you know, there's thousands of people waiting for us to go on at some big festival and we're all like sitting back having a laugh together singing some tractor ad that we heard in the 1980s you know <laughs> remember that and one of these stupid ads is i seem to remember was for this product called rosella savory rice so i and it's just some one of those crappy instant rices and i'm pretty sure i started singing like this lyric over this and and, and the ad used to go like this but the music's Buy Me a Pony, but this is the early part of Buy Me a Pony, so it's She said no to no, and I said no to no, and they said no to no. I mean, totally stupid, you know, and that's, I mean, I know that's a bit of an, a slightly in joke. You'd have to be watching TV in the 80s to remember. But for a long time, this was the situation with this song. We, we were rehearsing at Bakehouse in Melbourne, and then we went to, um, a really old farmhouse and Whit took his four track up in Finley and we rehearsed with no one around, just a couple of horses and some dogs and lots of insects. And this song kept sticking around, you know, we didn't know what to do with it. And then we ended up getting to the studio, which is the 301, the old 301 in, in Castle Race Street in, in Sydney, which was such a beautiful studio. And our producer, Phil McKellar, and I'm like, hey, man, I've got this song. It's really good, <laughs> you know. And then Wit wrote some lyrics that are about video games because we were playing lots of video games, but nothing really worked. And then the structure of the song was done. 
but I couldn't work out what the lyric was. And then really, like it all came so quickly because I guess I'd been thinking about, you know, we were feeling a little bit of pressure in a sense because we'd signed this big deal and all of a sudden we went from playing, you know, at the tote to being this big commercial success. Even though the music was the same, the circumstances were very different. And it's quite a big transition from what happens today where I think most bands aspire to, you know, they, if they know they get played a lot on Triple J, they're going to have a lot of people go into their shows and there's a big chance of commerciality. And, you know, in relative terms, the whole population is now much more commercially driven where kids grow up wanting to be billionaires, you know, and that's mm. their aspiration. Whereas we thought being a billionaire sucked. You're the biggest sellout in fucking history. Why would you want to do that? What's the purpose, you know? this whole element of purpose and what's what we're actually trying to achieve in our lives, I think is quite different in a sense. And I think one of the things about the nineties was that we, we just wanted to play music and just try to be a good person and try to be good to each other and try to change things. I guess yep. there was a lot of stuff going on about this. And then all of a sudden, don't you want to be a personality? Like it's almost like, ah, oh, okay. You know, there's a bit of a game show in there. There's a bit of an ad in there. There's a bit of television talent show. And all of a sudden, all the lyrics just came streaming out of me. And it really was like that. The whole song was pretty much written in about half an hour. And it's also the shortest song, isn't it, that ever took out the top gong or even appeared in the um, Triple J's Hottest 100s. Yeah. It's an incredibly short song. There's a lot. I guess there's a lot of stuff in it. But it's just weird how a song can really reveal itself it's almost like it's your friend has been waiting to to tell you something and that was kind of like my subconscious mind bringing it out and then once the song was recorded and I remember we used a very small amplifier like a little tiny practice amp that's what that particular you know that sort of sound is on his guitar and we recorded it and we were really happy with the re- production and then, you know, the record's finished and then it's like, okay, what are we doing for a single? And and I was, I, I'm pretty sure I was the only person who said, no, you have to release Buy Me A Pony. This is the song. And I, there was a bit of scepticism in the label and I think within the band, I mean, Janet might disagree, I can't remember actually, but I, I, I'm pretty certain I was like, we have to do this because this is a moment. And the reason is, is this song is so topical. It's so different than anything we've ever done. And I have this sort of belief in the history of pop music that when you've got something that's really different and it's really good, you should always put it out and often just put it out first single. Black Betty was exactly the same for us. Like it was one of those situations where you just had a feeling like this was the right decision. And it ended up being being that way. And the biggest, I guess, and most wonderful thing about the song is that how the public got it. So we weren't the only people in, the, you know, the three members of Spider-Bait weren't the only people feeling this way. I'm sure you guys in the media felt the same way. You're a music fan, Jane, like everyone, and all of the fans and all everyone was going, well, what's going on here? What the fuck's going to happen? And, and are we going to lose something? And, I, you know, in a way... That's what I think really resonated with people. And that was a big surprise at the time. I wasn't, I thought the song might be a bit eclectic and weird, but it wasn't the case at all. And I'm really glad that's, that's the truth.
remember playing it live or being at a festival and seeing the audience respond to that en masse? Well, it was a weird song because, you know, in the old days we used to, like I remember um, when I wrote Circle K and that was just, you know, I think it's a different key. I went down to the Circle K. That's our old, that's all my songs used to be like that, you know, and you just trash it out. But this was much more concise, so it was played and written together, I guess, but playing it live in a way it was a bit bit of a challenge because I'm like, how am I, the hell am I going to sing this and play it and everything sound tight and good together? We did it at Livid once and the Livid Festival was, we used to love playing Big Day Out and all of these big outdoor festivals and we still love those types of shows. But the Livid Festival was special because I think it was the one that predated all this, you know, huge change in the business. I can remember playing Livid before all this happened. We did it at Livid, but for some reason we did Misty's flight from Melbourne and there was all this stress going on and it was just going to be, oh, my God, our show is going to be cancelled. We're never going to be invited back to play again. Uh, Fiona, our manager, was throwing up backstage because of the, the stress and anxiety she was suffering. Um, I don't think she's ever gotten over it, actually. Um, I think Whit flies the day before now, ever since. But um, but he eventually did make it, and we went on stage like 10 minutes late or something, and stage around is giving a shit. Everyone's copying it. You know, they're all stressed. And then we, when we came along in the set to buy me a pony, it just all came together. I can even remember the, the, the shirt I was wearing, oh, that's, oh, that old blue stripy shirt I used to have. And it was a real moment because it all, the song came together. It felt so comfortable and the crowd was with us and all of a sudden all was forgiven. You know, it was one of those moments where the similar thing when we first played um, Old Man Sam at the Big Day Out in Sydney, like I've often said that was the moment that we walked on stage, a pub band, and we came off stage like a stadium band. Like it just had a, had such a strange effect having just had that one song can can have on you. And this was definitely the case with Bum Your Pony. And it's been a big part of our set ever since. But sometimes we will change it around where I get Janet to to jump on the drums and I'll come out the front to sing it so I can really get the crowd going. Because I think these days it's probably just as much a crowd song as it is a band song. What elements of that song did you take forward, you know, when it comes to making music and the identity that is Spider Bait? You know, like what you take now from that song that's always an imprint in everything you've done since. One of the funny things about that idea and the idea of a song is your own songs can actually teach you things. So it's almost like there's an outer worldly quality to them. And I do believe in that aspect of music that sometimes it can just come out of you. Like when even when you start playing guitar, you don't necessarily go, right, I'm going to sit down and play this. You just start playing. And I know when I used to smoke lots of pot, like I used to do that all the time and have recorded and have no recollection. I was so stoned that I would have had made these riffs up. So there's something going on that isn't part of the conscious conscious space. But if you if you sort of take the time, I guess, to to try and look deeper into the song, I I learned a lot about by me from by me a pony and can can consider it such an important song for me which is one of the reasons I wanted to, to choose that song and that is the first thing is the the, the concentration on lyric mm. like I love Circle K 
I've always loved the lyrics, you know, when we used to live in this house in Campbellwell and we were punk rockers and everyone used to look at us weird and thought we were scumbags and we'd go down to the Circle K, which is like a 7-Eleven, and get to get a hot dog and come back because we had the munchies, you know, just stupid sort of normal everyday stuff. I liked that. But this song was different in the sense that it, I was really the first time in a way I'd really thought about something, you know, serious that was happening to me and expressing it, you know, obviously with a lot of humour, which is often my way of sort of expressing myself with, I guess, satirically speaking. But I learned a lot after that song. I'm like, well, this is really good. I should really try and do this more often. The second one was was musically where just the tightness of the pop writing, um, which Janet would had always been into, but me not so much. I'd appreciated great pop songs, but trying to just to try and really keep it concise and keep it powerful. And then thirdly, the production and the way it was recorded, like that it didn't have to be super heavy and it didn't have to be super aggressive. And I think when I was first starting out, I was so um, full of energy and I guess I was very much the leader of the band and every band has one early in the early days where who's the driving force, you know, and that was me. But a lot of the time I felt sometimes that I was trying too hard, you know, smashing it too hard or, you know, to the point of where I was missing something along the way, missing a subtlety. And this song really opened up something a bit more in me where you could just sort of be a bit more back. I know it's a high energy song. And I think also in terms of the song's success and just trying to read into something that's actually going on outside of yourself in terms of what's happening in the, in the community. Timmy Rogers once said a great quote, and that is, it's, it's not a music business, it's a music community. And it's that, that there were people out there feeling things. And so the actual success of the song and the reaction to the song has taught me a lot as well. And so I've carried all those things into the rest of my career. And I sort of always try to, to continue to, to do that. And that it seems to work to me for me just to allow myself to be more open. And I'm so much more comfortable in myself these days as an artist and as a person. I think that's one of the, the good things that comes with age. But it's really nice to go back and in a retrospective fashion, look at some of your earlier work and really love it and really appreciate it in the ways that you did then, but also in new ways. Maybe if it's possible to take a trip down memory lane in terms of after the album comes out, going on tour and the opportunities that happened on the road, like Beastie Boys. After this record, we we just became so huge. Like it was a, a massive thing. And, and obviously not just By Me A Pony, like Calypso was a huge song and still is. A lot of women in the business and in different bands are really got really inspired by by that song and by Janet. And so those two songs is very much a duality there between the two of us, that are, I guess, as the main songwriters in the band. And just, you know, Wit's real power as a guitar player coming to the fore. And I've, I've always thought I think he's one of the great guitar players in the history of Australian music. Like he's, nobody sounds like Wit. He just has this magic about him. And just this outer worldliness, the way he approaches the instrument. And he was, you know, all this stuff all coming together at once culminated in this album and and sort of set us set it sent us into the stratosphere and then all of a sudden we're playing with bands like the beastie boys who we were huge fans of you know years before 
we're all just scumbag punk rock students living in a share house in Campbellwell and Paul's Boutique came out and we went and bought that album and we just thought it was the greatest thing we'd ever heard and we were just so amazed that it was such a flop. It was one of those examples of, ah, so a really great piece of work doesn't necessarily always be successful and I think it's a really interesting lesson to learn. Um, And then we love Check Your Head, which was amazing and we, we thought that album was really great because... We loved the live playing stuff on it. We didn't actually even realize that those guys were musicians. We just thought they were rappers. And that album was killer. And then we got we got asked to do the, the tour with them. And I remember the Melbourne show, we were really excited. And being a very pragmatic human being, had a really awesome big quad box, Marshall stack quad box, his guitar set up. But he just got sick of carrying it around everywhere. And it just was so big. So he... One day he just decided to screw on some um, skateboard wheels on the side of the of the amp. And um, that's how he used to wheel it around. It was really cool because you could turn it as well. And then MCA were in soundcheck at the palace, the old palace before it burned down. That was the worst place to stage dive if, if no one caught you, by the way, in the whole, in the whole country because that floor was so hard. I don't know if you ever jumped off stage there, Jane, but I hope you survived. Not there, but Festival Hall, yes. I think I saw you flying past me at a, at a Cosmic Psychos gig once too. I sort of, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure I was in the air somewhere. That's another story. Oh, <laughs> yeah, like MCA comes over and goes, and he basically says, can you ride it, man? Or some sort of really bad, like I'm doing a really bad Brooklyn accent. Um, I, 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 I sounded, I actually sounded more like Bobcat Goldthwaite then. But anyway, <laughs> but, um, and Wit couldn't quite understand what he was saying and he couldn't understand Wit's thick Riverina, Southern Riverina Australian accent either. But eventually what he was actually asking was, can you ride it? And I don't think Wit had ever, ever done it. So the amps wheeled up to the side of the stage. MCA is on stage. The amps on the floor. And then MCA from the Beastie Boys rides a Marshall's quad box around the floor of the palace in soundcheck like a skateboard. It was a magical moment, you know. Wow. And we played some really good shows with them and we also toured with Primus, which was cool, and Les was a real gentleman and they were an awesome band to play with. We also did some fantastic shows. We did a great great tour with Babes in Toyland. We loved, we loved that band. Oh, they were great, yeah. They were so exciting and just one of those bands that I'm not sure if a lot of people realise about that band, but Janet was a huge fan and they were just such sweethearts for us. I had a really – this is a gross story. I wasn't going to tell you, but I thought stuff it with – Yeah, go on. Tell us. We're playing a show with them and um, you know that thing in life where you're on the toilet and – You'd finish. Someone else knocks on the door, and it's just like, "Oh no, you're you're ha- you're going to have to follow me." And it was, <laughs> it was me in the toilet. I think our gig had finished, and I really needed to dump one down, down the plug <laughs> hole. So I went, I went down there, and I was like, "This is great." And I got a knock on the door, and I think I don't remember if she opened it, but it was Cat, the the lead singer yep. of Babes in Toyland, and I'm like, oh, and I was like, oh my god, and she the, just the thought she would have thought I was so disgusting and gross, and like, <laughs> why can't I be one of those nice guys whose poo doesn't smell so bad, you know? But anyway, that she she still spoke she still spoke to me after that. I'm sure that was the same in reverse because yeah. this is that this is the still the era where everyone dressed like really scummy and 
Yeah, flannelettes and... The pump rock coming out of Melbourne and was pretty dirty. And I remember we did a tour of LA in America once in those years and we did this show in LA and everyone just looked at us like we were freaks. Like we, They actually looked at us like we were scum uh, because Fiona and Janet were just dressed so androgynously and me and Wit the same and we just all looked really scummy and everyone in LA, it was like this pretend sort of really super clean, only retentive punk rock wear, you know, where babes are still babes and blokes are still blokes. It was kind of had this real macho and and we just didn't fit in at all. Like it was so weird. We we couldn't believe because that was definitely not, not what was going on in Melbourne at, you know, Cosmic Psychos or Hard-Ons gigs or, or our shows. Yeah, and band T-shirts were one size. There was no girly tees around, no. you know. Everyone just wore the same T-shirt. We found this video recently and there's this – we're going to release a, a a very special record next year, which is a, a basically a, a double album of um, a retrospective of all of Janet's work in, in the band. The, the cover photograph is of uh, her standing in front of this crowd of 30,000 people at the big day out in, in Sydney and Fiona took this and you can only see Janet's silhouette but – just how insane the crowd looks. But when you look closely, there's just this, it's really hard to tell people apart. Everyone's sort of dressed the same and looks kind of the same. And I know um, we found some old video of some some show in Wollongong, I think it was, or maybe it was in Croydon. And just just how everyone looks so similar. Like there wasn't, there was a real seemingly sense of androgyny going on where everyone just had a flanny jeans, ratty hair and, just, you know, had a stubby of beer and a, and a ciggy in their hand. But as time wore on, like, we, we did bigger and bigger tours. The Big Day Out was obviously a huge thing for us and we had some massive shows playing at that and Splendour in the Grass and a lot of other shows. We, and that's kind of become the norm now, I guess, for us when we, we really love playing those types of shows. At the time, when it was first happening, it was just like you're in this crazy whirlwind, you know, like the insane parties that used to go on, the, the infamous flight from Adelaide to Perth with, you know, more more rock stars and you can poke a stick at, all behaving badly. And they were really fun days. I, I remember sitting in a hotel room with the bad seeds. I'm like, well, oh, my God, this is, I'm so uncool. And another time, that's right, it was backstage. And we're in Tumbleweed's band room, and we used to love and still love playing with Tumbleweed. And they used to bong on like crazy back then. Oh, my God, those guys were like, <laughs> they were like the Orient Express, man. It was epic. <laughs> then Porno for Pyros comes in. It's yeah. um, Perry Farrell and he's like, oh, you got, and there's just this bong sharing going on and and um, then he starts talking about the chakras in his body and, and his drummer was drumming the whole time. And I, I just seem to remember those days there was a lot more communal sort of backstage stuff going on. I can remember mm. us playing cricket backstage with, with Silverchair and then, then Tony Mott, the photographer, would always arrange football games between the English bands and the Australian bands and crew. We played against the Colt once and um, Ian Asprey was such a poser and he had all like brand new stuff. He had these like $500 Predator boots and he was a really posy sort of player. And whereas Billy Duffy, the, the guitar player, was just dressed in an old Man City jersey and was the full tough central midfielder who, who kind of ran the show and I always wondered if that's how it actually worked in the recording studio as well like 
But we had a lot of, there was some really good, good fun times. It was very active. I mean, it's funny when you see photos of that. Now I saw a photo of us and Jebediah recently. I think it was backstage at a, at a rocket festival in Perth. Just how young and just healthy everyone looked, you know, <laughs> you forget that you, that you looked that way. Cause I think for most people in, in music, you kind of just feel the same, um, you know, whether you're, I know Paul Grabowski feels like that, Paul Kelly. And that's one of the, the beautiful things about being an artist and a musician is there's, there is a certain type of community that exists beyond age that you can, some of my friends in bands are in, you know, are 20 years old and others are, are 60. So it's kind of, I like that about that aspect of music whereas i think a lot of other parts of life are incredibly ageist and incredibly socioeconomically based it's nice art is a place where all the weirdos can hang out and have a good time and cram maybe finally i was just going to ask you to trying to recollect what it was like to live in melbourne at the time you did because i remember you telling me that you didn't all come to melbourne at the same time as a band even though you're all from the same country town right well, Mel- living in Melbourne at the time was like... <laughs> That's basically what... <laughs> that was like... There's a bit of hoss in there. There's a bit of like, you know, I mean... I remember it. We just had a great... I don't know, you were there, Jane, and it was just the best. It was so it was fun. I remember, stagger- I remember staggering home... I mean, I think we played a show at the at the old Vic on the Park Hotel, which was a weird venue in Richmond that I don't think punk rockers were supposed to be there for long, and I don't think they were. I think it reverted back to a wedding reception centre. It was part of the Hilton Hotel group or something. I can't remember. I don't even know exactly where it was, but we played there with the Meanies once, and we also played there with Venom P. Stinger, who mm. one of my favourite all-time Australian bands, and... And back in the day when the legendary Dougal McKenzie was singing for them. And um and we, we just were so stoked to be playing with someone we just thought was so amazing, but was really nice to us. They were always really lovely guys and and you know, and Jim and Mick still to this day the same, like um with Dirty Three and I think we'd played the show and or somehow our gear was left there or something, or maybe we just went to see them. But we got stuck. And we couldn't get home. We lived in this, you know, we lived in our, we were the local um, scumbag punk rockers of Camberwell. And we had to walk home from Richmond to Camberwell up that giant hill. And it was like 12 kilometers. And we were just like, oh, no, no one could afford a cab because nobody had any money. And there were no Ubers back then. And so we just, we looked down at our Doc Martens and our Blundstones and put our flannies on and headed up the hill. And we walked home and we ended up having this fantastic wonderful joyous sort of crazy time i think first the beers ran out and then the ciggies ran out and then all you've got left is is mucking around and jokes and i think we jumped the fence of xavier college and we went in into the college and um xavier has this amazing huge dome i think it's a a church something religious basically but and with this incredible big stone platform and you can stand up there and just see the whole city. It's it's beautiful view. And here we are, this sort of like, I know someone's got a Metallica t-shirt on and someone's got a probably a Sonic Youth t-shirt and you're just sitting there kind of reclaiming the space in a way from this very pious kind of irreverent 
expensive place because we were all thinking um, we just needed a rest. We're really tired. We're only halfway home. And we had this great moment. We looked out at the whole city and had a really bonding experience. And eventually we, we made it home and we used to, you know, sometimes we'd take acid and go in the park and <laughs> me and Whit took acid and, and was actually with Sean Baxter once and we all took acid and went on the 72 tram into the city and that was just the biggest <laughs> That was the funniest day of my life. Oh my god! Everyone's look. Everyone's looking at you because you do look weird, and you've got you're on this strong acid. And Janet just <laughs> stayed in bed. She couldn't leave the house. She she just she freaked out. So we like, right, we're going to the city, <laughs> and you know, just you really felt like you were a bit of a you were a happily misfit. You were a happy, not doing the normal thing what everyone else is doing. Not living the bullshit rat race that everyone else is doing you didn't care about the future so much or the fact that you had no money you had a sense of freedom about yourself and i i think that encapsulated the melbourne scene back then there was a real yeah there was and a maybe maybe and maybe why we why we felt kind of weird and unsure about the commerciality i guess that would the success would bestow upon us in the future you know it's i gotta say jane that i'm really happy to be talking about the past from the future in a sense, because I, I do, I am glad of the decisions we make and I'm glad that, you know, Buy Me a Pony happened and all this stuff has happened. But I still look so fondly on that, that time. But in a way, it's, it's like for me, the same sort of thing, like why I, I ended up moving away from Melbourne and now I live up here on the coast. And it's sort of like you get to points in life where you, you have to move on to the next phase. But by doing so, you almost get to really appreciate what what you've been through better than ha- than constantly trying to relive it and and stay in a space that that can't really last forever, and I think in regards to that, uh, Melbourne is to me the great music city of the world. The quality of musicians, the quality of bands and songwriting, the culture of music, the from everyone who is a fan to who talks about music, writes about music, creates music, plays music just loves it. I mean, look at how many people came to, you know, poor Michael Budinsky's funeral and wake. Like he was such a big ball of energy and so in, no one was more enthusiastic about music than Michael, you know. It's like that's from that other side of things. And then Melbourne's just full of those types of characters. It, it I guess it's a like people talk about the football in a way, but uh, that's a bit unfair because I think music is a hell of a lot more meaningful than that, um, that it's culturally important, that it's romantic and significant and essential to everyone's life down there. And you can feel it when you go to that city. And i got to say that Spider-Bait is very, very proud. Even though we're from Finley, we're very proud to be a Melbourne band. And I think that has... The fact that that city is still treats us with such great joy and respect is beautiful, and that whether we're playing at the corner or at the My Music Bowl, we feel the same way. You know, it's 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 awesome, and I I think as I get older, I I, I feel even more joyous about that time because it wasn't always great when you're literally down to your last dollar sometimes, but your friends would always help you out, and you knew that there was a a cheap band, you just go to the GB in Richmond and see a band for two bucks, you know. Right. <laughs> Sometimes yep. that was us or, or other nights it was Magic Dirt or whoever. So yeah, it's really good. 
Cram, thank you so much for taking part in some of my best work and talking by me a pony and all the uh, the memories that came with the making of that song and, and the history of spider bait in the 90s too. Thanks, Jane. It's always a pleasure. Debate and the story of Buy Me a Pony, a song that only goes for one minute and 44 seconds, one of the shortest songs to ever win the Hottest 100 and the first Australian song to ever do so. In the next episode of Some of My Best Work, we have Jaguar Jones. I'm Jane Rocker. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.